0: Today's sermon text is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh.
1: Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. When you see that word finally there in uh, Philippians 3 verse 1, don't read that as, okay, I've said all the important stuff. Now I'm going to shut this thing down. That's not what he means by finally there, and that's sort of a poor translation. Rather, think of it this way. There are, there's an important issue that I need to address, and here it is. And he says these words, rejoice in the Lord. That's what he needs to address. Rejoice in the Lord. Finally, guys, there's something big I need to talk about. It's huge. I saved it for this point. Rejoice in the Lord. That is not filler. That is not preacher talk. Amen, glory, hallelujah, you know, stuff like that. He's literally saying, I'm going to teach you how to rejoice in the Lord. I am going to show you why it is deathly important that you, with your life, celebrate Jesus. I am going to tease out what it means to live in Jesus And to live in Jesus, in Paul's mind, at least in this text, to live in Jesus means to celebrate Jesus, to rejoice in Jesus, to find emotive strength in Jesus, to root down in passion for Jesus, is to rejoice in him. And if what happened in Orlando in the early hours of this morning says anything to us, it's this, that our world needs to be filled with people who know how to rejoice in Jesus. It is insane that just a day earlier, a pop singer was brutally murdered by a fan in central Florida. A person who was so broken... And so far from God that somehow the only piece that this person could muster in his life was to assassinate a singer, someone he had no relationship with, a 22-year-old little girl, a contestant on a singing show, The Voice. A day later, Orlando, Central Florida, a man that some say he may have been a terrorist. I don't know. I've not heard yet in the last couple of hours. But regardless, a person who thought that the only peace that he could experience and bring to this broken world is to murder so many people. We need to know how to rejoice in Jesus. And there are people all over our world right now, all over our world right now, bitter angry, afraid, broken, that do not know the life of rejoicing in Jesus. He is not saying here, dig down deep and go to this place you've never been before and maybe manufacture some joy for this person that we worship called Jesus. He is saying, the Jesus that you know, be with him. Connect with him, fellowship with him, make him your own as he has made you his own, and you will discover deep resources of joy in Jesus that nothing else can give you in this world. That's what this text is about. So he says, finally, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. It's safe for you. Repetition. Repetition. Beware of the novel. Beware of putting a demand on your preachers, your television shows, your families, whoever and whatever in your life to do something new and abnormal to stimulate you. Because what we don't need is something new. What we need is something old. Something that has survived. Something that has thrived. Something that has stood the test of time. We need something that is old. And what I don't mean by old is antiquated. What I mean by old is ancient and enduring and glorious. And His name is Jesus. We need Him. This isn't just filler or church talk. He wants to show us He wants to show us how to rejoice in the Lord. But remember that phrase in the second part of that verse. For me to write the same things to you, it's no trouble. It's safe for you. Remember that. Remember that. Look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What on earth is he talking about here? Look out for dogs. Is Paul afraid of dogs? No. Paul is addressing a big problem that's taking place in the Philippian church and is taking place in a lot of the churches that Paul has planted and has encouraged. There is this belief among the Jews who have come to Christ that Jesus isn't enough to get us favor and God's love. That putting our trust in Jesus isn 't enough. there are Jewish Christians who say, "How dare those people who 've never been circumcised, which was the mark of being a Jew that goes deep into the uh, the Old Testament? How dare these people claim to be part of the people of God, and they are uncircumcised? They have never kept not one ceremonial law of the Jewish of the Jewish covenant. And these people claim to be part of the people of God. How dare they do that? It was insulting for them. Big time racism happening here. And so these people are going behind Paul, and they are backfilling his ministry by going and saying what Paul preaches is good, but he missed something. He left a big piece out. If you've never been circumcised, you need to be circumcised, or you don't really have a relationship with God. You're not in covenant with God. You're not saved. You're not born again. You are not part of God's people. So you must be circumcised. And there were a lot of churches that Paul went to that were in the Greek world, the Roman world, that didn't grow up as Jewish people. You've got to do this. You've got to keep ceremonial portions of the law, ritual portions of the law in order for God to love you. And Paul says about these people, they are dogs, they are evildoers, and they are mutilators of the flesh. Now he doesn't say "dog" the way we would today. That's not exactly what he means by that. There's not this pungent anger driving him or hatred for these people. Maybe an anger, but not a hatred for these people. A dog was a, and I know we're hard, well, this will be hard, this will, we'll have a hard time relating to this. But it, a dog was simply a Jewish way of labeling someone who was not in the Jewish faith, who wasn't a Jew, who was outside the family of God who was outside the family of God. He says, these people are actually dogs. They're the ones who are outside of the covenant. They're the ones who are outside of the family of God. They're not the insiders. They think they're the insiders, and they're going to show you how to be an insider. Actually, we're the insiders. They're the outsiders now. They don't know the God that they say that they preach. He says they're also evildoers, which is incredible because the Judaizers, as they were often called, these people weren't going around and murdering and committing adultery and killing people. They weren't doing stuff like that. These were people who were good boys and good girls. And Paul says that because they don't put their trust in Jesus alone, even the good works that they do make them evildoers in the eyes of God. If they think they've got to do good things for God to love them, they are converted into evildoers. That was crazy to consider. Then he says they're mutilators of the flesh. They are no better, in Paul's mind, than pagans with their grotesque ritual practices cutting and harming and sacrificing. They are no different than those pagans who behave that way. Now, that's heavy. Paul throws the gauntlet down. For people who think that in addition to trusting in Jesus, they must do something else for God to love them, these people are evildoers. They are mutilators of the flesh. They are dogs. Now, I think that in most churches today, if this was going on, I don't think we would attack it with that kind of urgency. I really don't think so. I think we'd view it as sort of a divergent theology that, you know, hey, that pocket over there, they're a little goofy when it comes to works, but, you know, praise God, at least they love Jesus. They pray the sinner's prayer. That is not Paul's view here. Paul is warning these people. He says, beware of them. Stay away from them. Stay away from anyone who calls you away from singularly trusting in Jesus. Stay away from anyone who calls you to put your trust, even if it's just a smidge in your own ability. Stay away from those people. They are dangerous And their leaven will spread through you and contaminate you. Stay away from them. Look at verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision. We are the ones who are the circumcision. He doesn't mean that we've actually all been circumcised because there are lots of Roman Roman citizens in the city of Philippi. They've not been circumcised, many of them. They don't have the mark of an ancient Jew. But they do have a particular mark, so to speak, in their lives that sets them apart as God's people. And he says, we are the circumcision. What is that mark that sets them apart? He says, we worship God by the Spirit. We worship God by the Spirit. Whoa. Our circumcision is the Spirit's presence in our lives. The Holy Spirit who is in our lives. Now, the implication of this is massive. This lets us know that when we come to Christ, we don't come because of something that we do. We come because the Spirit pursued us. I don't care what your theology is on this. You ask anybody who has legitimately come to Jesus and to the last one they will say, God pursued me. God did it. God did it. I didn't want this, but God did it. God gave me affections for things of Him. I didn't want those affections. I wanted other things in the world. This is why the Bible says in Ephesians that we are children of wrath. We were born as children who were averse to God, against God, opposed to God and His ways. And the Holy Spirit graciously entered our lives. And if you sitting in these chairs right now, if you have any affection for Jesus, it's not because of anything that you did. It's because of the Holy Spirit's grace. Paul said to the Galatians, You foolish Galatians who are experiencing the same bad teaching and heresy. What began in the Spirit do you think can be made perfect by your flesh? What began in the Spirit? What is he talking about? Their relationship with God. It began by the Spirit. Before they prayed a sinner's prayer. Before they were water baptized, before they answered an invitation, the Spirit had given them belief in Jesus and his kingdom. Boom. The Spirit did it. The Spirit. Man, God's Spirit is so good. We came to faith, my friends, by an act of God. An act of God. But I want you to notice something here. He says, we worship God by the Spirit when he says we worship God by the Spirit, he's not saying we sing songs by the Spirit. That's not what he's saying. It may include that. He's not talking about a segment of a church service like what we just wrapped up. When he says we worship by the Spirit, Paul is here saying, this is how I categorize Jesus' life in him. Worship. Worship. We are worshipers. We are not Christians who worship. A legitimate Christian is a worshiper. They're the same thing. They're synonymous. Christians worship Jesus. And we worship through the singing of songs. We adore him by lifting up our song to him. But we also adore him By pursuing his commands and obeying him. We also adore him that way. It's all worship. From cover to cover in your Bible is a worship manual, if you will. It is how to rejoice in God. It's how. And so when you see we worship in the spirit, don't just see it as a segment of a church service. It's far more than that. Far more than that. So remember, we're talking about how to worship, how to rejoice in the Lord, how to rejoice in the Lord. Now, right now, this is pretty antiseptic. We're just going through verse by verse. Okay, that's what this says. That's what verse 2 says. That's what verse 3 says. I beg you to stay with me this morning. This is going to get very personal in just a few minutes. When I say personal, I mean mean, and like I've got a beef with you. I just mean it's going to be very personal, very intimate. You're going to find God's word very intrusive in a couple of moments. This word has been intruding in my life for the last several weeks. And man, my prayer is that it does the same thing to you because it's been rich, so rich. Um, So I want you to remember that Paul is teaching them how to rejoice in the Lord. What is it to rejoice in the Lord? What does that look like? And I want to say this just quickly. The evidence of the Spirit's presence in our lives is an increasing affection for Jesus. If you point to praying a sinner's prayer as coming to faith in Christ, you're pointing to the wrong thing. And I'm saying that not because I've got a big issue with the sinner's prayer, but because I'm preaching in the Christian South, where a lot of people think they've come to Christ because repeating a prayer enacted some mystical encounter with God that changed their eternal destiny. A sinner's prayer does not do that. As we discussed a moment ago, the Holy Spirit does that. If you pray a sinner's prayer or jump on a baptismal or you just start reading your Bible and obeying Jesus, the reason you're born again is because the Spirit's presence in your life, not because of something that you did. If you feel guilt and sorrow over your sins, it's because the Spirit's presence in your life. If you have an increasing affection for the things of Jesus, it's because of the Spirit's presence in your life. No prayer put that there. Now maybe your mom and daddy's prayers contributed to that. But what made you different, what changed your heart, what renewed your mind, what gave you new affections was the presence of the Spirit in your life, period. Jesus did it all. Jesus did it all. I love how that always gets an amen. Jesus did it all. Amen. amen. Yes, he did, brother. He did it all. And I'm glad you amen That is true. He did it all. So, but this begs the question. When he says, worship in the Spirit, what does he mean by that? We worship in the Spirit. What does that look like? Because if, Chris, what you're saying is that obedience is worship, usually I'm gritting my teeth. I'm clenching my fists. I feel resistance in my heart. And when I think of spirit, I think of floating around. I think of flittering around. I think... Uh, I'm not trying to be patronizing, but that's how a lot of modern people think of spirit. as Something like, like a, a wisp, a smoke, you know. That's not what he means here, I don't think. If that is the case, this begs the question. Should people who have authentically come to Jesus... Feel something on a regular basis Should they Should people who are filled with the spirit Have a mystical experience Should something be happening that's tangible Or a sensation of some sort that we can perceive Should that tell us that we really are born again Is that what's happening here Let's find out Look at verses 4 through 6 because this is where Paul says, this is the opposite of living by the Spirit, worshiping by the Spirit. There's worshiping by the Spirit, and then there's trying to worship by the flesh. So this is the opposite of the Spirit. Y'all with me? So if we know what the opposite of the Spirit is, maybe that'll help us know what the Spirit is. Right? that makes sense? Okay. Here he goes. Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. I was circumcised on the eighth day according to Jewish regulation. I'm of the people of Israel. I've got the right national brand, the right ethnic label. Not only that, I'm of the elite tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning instruction in the law. And when it comes to perfection in the law, and here Paul's not saying he's sinless. Be very careful about that. But he is saying that his official status as a Pharisee was blameless. He was the top of his class. That's another way of saying that. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and I know all of us are like, well, that's really bad. But you've got to remember, in Paul's mind, the church was like this heretical cult. He was part of the Jewish people of God. He was stomping out anything that dishonored our great God, Yahweh. Paul thought he was doing what was right. And he he, he pursued it with all of his might. As to righteousness under the law, again, my official station, blameless. Not sinless, that's not what he's saying. But blameless. I follow the law with almost perfection. This is what I've done. And so in Paul's mind, here's what it means to live according to the flesh. Remember, this is the opposite of the Spirit. You can say worship by the Spirit, or you could say live by the Spirit. It's the same thing in the Bible. It's the same thing. Y'all follow me? Worship by the Spirit, live by the Spirit. Same thing. Same thing. Because life in Jesus is worship. Okay, I'll quit saying that. All right, moving on. Here's what it means to live according to the flesh in Paul's writings. First is this, that you're born in the right ethnic group, an Israelite. So it's your flesh, you are racially a Jew. Here's another meaning, that it's you're also a Jew religiously by heritage, something you inherit through your family. You were brought up worshiping Jehovah as a Jewish person. Here's what else it means to be in the flesh in the scriptures. That Paul has put together an impressive record of spiritual accomplishments. All that means the flesh in Paul's writings. To be ethnically born in the right family, a Jew. To worship the right way, Judaism. And to follow Judaism with perfection. He did all this stuff. All of it. And yet, all of these achievements in Paul's life, when he met Jesus, became liabilities. All of these things became reprobate to Paul. He later calls it rubbish. Rubbish. Anybody want to take a guess on what that, actually, what that really means? That's a, that's a nice, clean way of talking about something really filthy. Anybody want to guess? My wife just said crap. She's exactly right. I said, did you say that? Yeah. So, pastors, pastor, the first lady just said, just said that. So, um, <laughs> She's dying right now. Is it the, the C word or is it the first lady? Sorry. Anyway, I'll pay for that later. Um, so, all of his spiritual achievements became liabilities. All of them did. Now, it, does that mean that what Paul is saying here is that trying... And expending effort is wrong? Does that mean that worshiping in the Spirit is floating around and not having to try, that you just are carried along by Jesus? Is that what that means? No. That is not what Paul is saying here. Some people preach it this way. That is not what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying, don't expend effort. Don't try. That's not what he's saying. Worship, Paul says in another place, is like being a living sacrifice. It's a death. It's a lifestyle of obedience and submission to Jesus. So what is he saying here? Why does he say that all the good things he's ever done are liabilities in his life? Why does he say that? Let's read on. Look at verses 7 through 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So that tells us something big here that all of these great achievements in Paul's life somehow were impairing his relationship with Jesus. Good works were keeping him from knowing Jesus. Being a good boy undermined the Spirit's presence in his life. Being a good boy kept him from being a good boy. What what is all this about? Look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I love that he says that there. Because notice when he talks about his life in Judaism, these are all the things that I did, past tense, period. I was zealous. I was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. All this stuff happened. But when he talks about his relationship with Jesus, it's not a passive static experience. It's active. It's ongoing. It's ever deepening. He's finding new and understanding. He's getting new revelations of what it means to follow Jesus and who Jesus is. And so he calls it the surpassing greatness. The further he goes... The deeper it gets. I love in the last battle of the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the slogans that they kept using at the end was further up and further in, further up and further in, further up and further in. And they found that as they were running in this new land, this, this new creation, this new kind of Narnia, that they didn't get tired. They were swimming up waterfalls, and everybody and animals would look back and say, Further up and further in. That's what the scriptures are saying here. Further up and further in. Let's go deeper. That's what Paul wants. He's finding that the achievements of being a good boy, doing good things, getting straight A's on his report card, keeping his nose clean, those things are so empty. There's something deeper and better and more beautiful than that that doesn't terminate in time but goes on forever. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And literally in the original language, he uses a crude word there to describe dung, rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Oh, he doesn't just say, I may gain Christ and go to church. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, swimming in him, with him, fellowshipping with him, adoring him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. It comes through faith in Christ. So my relationship with Jesus, secured not by what I do, because all that is rubbish, and take it from a guy who has lived the life that we all want, Because we have all prayed, Lord, take this behavior away from me. Fix this part of me. Change me. And if all this junk in my life was gone, I know that would be better. My friends, that dysfunction in your life disappearing is not what you need. What you need is to know the surpassing greatness of Jesus. You don't need a sinless life. You need a Jesus full life. don't believe the religious lie that the answer to everything is that that dysfunction or that sin disappears. And please understand, I'm not saying that's okay. God wants it gone too. But there's a deeper story here. It's not having a sinless life. It's having a Jesus full life. And this is where usually a lot of Bible-believing Southern Christians balk because that messes with our affections. That messes with our idols. Tell me I can be good and go to heaven. Cool. I can still have a good time and follow my own lead. But tell me that Jesus is king of my life and he rules my affections, he rules my destiny. He rules my parenting. He rules my sex life. He rules my marriage. He rules the way I drive in the interstate. He rules the way I vacation. He rules the way I spend money. He rules everything about me. He rules the way that I eat. He rules the way that I do church. He rules the way that I drink coffee. He rules everything. That's That Jesus, many, many people who pray the sinner's prayer don't want anything to do with him. We don't want that. We don't want a Jesus who rules our Facebook page. We don't want that Jesus. We don't want a Jesus who rules our relationships at work. We don't want a Jesus who rules those things. We don't want a Jesus who rules our political dialogue. We want to be in charge. We've got it figured out. We know what's right for everybody else. And we will let them know. We will let them know. We will let them know. All this, Paul says, is dung, All of it. All those things kept him from craving Jesus. All those things. Sometimes, my friend, and I'd say this is true for a lot of people in our world, Sometimes being good is the best way to avoid Jesus. Sometimes being good is the best way to avoid Jesus. The best way. We've all got our own list of our accomplishments. I'll read a few of them to you. These are just some that have randomly came to me as I was thinking about this sermon. We've all got our own list of spiritual conceitedness. For instance, here's one. And these statements say so much about our self-righteousness. These statements all betray our deeply held belief that they are more monstrous than I am. That they need Jesus more than I need Jesus. When we say stuff like, Man, why can't he just get his stuff together? Anybody want to take a stab at what you're really saying when you say that? Anybody? What's that? Do it my way, yeah? yeah. Anybody else? I got my stuff together. Be like me. I figured it out. Come on. I love this text, Luke 18, 9 through 14. Listen to the power of this statement, these statements. Listen to it like you've never heard this before. Let it mess with you. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said this, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, and Jesus said that for a reason, feeling as though he didn't deserve, and he was right, but standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said something extraordinary. I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What is he telling us? That the needy are the ones who are closer to God than the people who have their stuff together. Why? Because the needy know they're broken. And the needy need Jesus. And this is why Jesus starts off his most profound sermon, arguably, by saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. You won't hunger and thirst for righteousness if you think you've got your stuff together. Here's a few more. We'll finish with this. I have a more advanced view of uh, of church than even some of my pastors do which is why I withdraw and I'm waiting for them to get their stuff together. How can you call yourself a Christian and not adopt orphans? I mean, look at how big the problem is. How can a person who claims to know Jesus vote for blank? If I could tell you how many times I've heard somebody say that. We're justified by faith and politics. How could parents send their children to public school? I live on mission. I wish other believers would get God's heart like I have it. I have never, ever seen an R rated movie, and I never will. You know, that one person who comes to our Bible study fellowship, she's always got problems, monopolizes the conversation. I've been faithful for 15 years and she's in and out. No wonder. No wonder. Our family isn't in debt. We save up every last cent to buy a vehicle while you're driving $500 a month cars. You're an idiot. If you had your stuff together like I do. We were sexually pure when we got married. And one of the few. Why didn't that person just lose some weight? Then that person won't have as many health problems and monopolize our community group gatherings with their problems and their needs. I've got a more advanced understanding of theology than a lot of people do. All of these things and more, all they do is yield a sense of accomplishment and self-righteousness. And the thing is that some of those things aren't wrong. Some of them are very virtuous. But if that's what you put your trust in and see if that allows you to stand over someone else then I suggest you take Paul's cue and consider that rubbish. Rubbish. As long as you are standing over others, you will never be able to submit to the person who lowered himself below everyone. As long as you stand above others, you will never, ever, ever, Ever submit to the God man who lowered himself below everyone. You will never do it. Being a good boy, having your stuff together, does not equal knowing Jesus. What is knowing Jesus? It's depending on Jesus. Just as a side note, if you ever find yourself saying something like, how can that person be that way? That should give you a cue that there's a story in that person's life that you don't know. I'm not saying it's okay that that person is that way. We are all called to repent of our sins. But if you ever find yourself looking down on a person, judging them, finding in your heart ridicule for that person... If that person brings you nothing but contempt, understand something. There is a story in that person's life you don't know. And rather than judging that person, why don't you know that story? Know that story. So what is it to know Jesus? What does that look like? What does that feel like? What is it to know Jesus? We'll cover the last two verses next week. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. Father, I pray that all of us in this room would be jolted and stymied by this message, by this text, as much as you have in my life the last couple of weeks. Lord, you have shown me my biases. You have shown me my meanness. You have shown me the ugliness of my heart. And although it hurts and is unsettling, it is creating in me more of a desperation for you. I need you. I need you. Thank you for reminding me that I don't have my stuff together. And I pray that all of us together would be a congregation of feeders on grace, like Denise prayed earlier, feeders on grace. I pray for every person here. I bless them in Jesus' name. I pray next week when Sunday rolls around, they won't skip it to read the paper, but they'll come and be a part of this fellowship, and we will feast on God's word together as we seek to know you in Jesus' name.